Okay, well, I think we should get started. Good afternoon. Welcome to the third day of the BSSH 2020 conference. Uh, I'm Nick Pierce. I'm going to be your chair for this panel. And it's the panel on the writing of history. And we've got three exciting topics today. So let's get straight to our first presentation. That's going to be from Sam Clevenger. And Dr. Sam Clevenger teaches sport management at Towson University in Baltimore, Maryland. And his current research centers on the history of the active body practices in modern town planning and the intersections of sport history and decolonial theories. And his research has been widely published in international journals, Rethinking History, Sport in Society, and Sport Education and Society. And today's paper is called A Better Attempt Than Usual, Deconstructing the History of Sport and Recreation at Port Sunlight. Please take it away, Sam. Thanks so much, Nick. Across the River Mersey from Liverpool stands the Port Sunlight Museum. The museum promotes the historical significance of Port Sunlight, a model industrial village built in the late 19th century by the British soap manufacturer Lever Brothers, now known as Unilever, to house their workers next to the factory. Company leaders, most notably the co-founder William Lever, believe that providing decent housing within a planned countryside setting would improve the health, efficiency, and productivity of the factory workers, as well as inspire amicable relations between the company and its workforce. Today, the museum, as part of the Port Sunlight Village Trust, proclaims that the community is one of the finest examples of modern model town planning in the United Kingdom and an inspiration to planners around the world. Some of them even propose that Port Sunlight should receive World Heritage status by UNESCO. The museum tells visitors that Port Sunlight worker residents enjoyed a wide range of opportunities for recreation, for leisure, and for sport, all provided by Lever Brothers and situated amongst landscape parks, access to fresh air and open space, and decent housing. One museum guidebook asserts that the company provided facilities and accommodations for clubs and societies, which then helped to create Port Sunlight's noted sense of community in a healthy competitive atmosphere. This specifically included the sporting interests of the workers who lived there, even though Lever himself was not necessarily passionate about sports. Local historian James Hayes writes that, quote, sport played a prominent part in the history of Port Sunlight from its earliest days. Few sport clubs in the country, and arguably no industrial concern had such splendid facilities as those given over the years by Lever Brothers. The sporting opportunities helped foster that sense of communal identity for which the village became noted and promotes now with pride, while also buttressing Lever's management goals of maintaining a healthy, productive, and sober workforce. The resulting narrative constructed by the museum promotes the idea that the workers who lived at Port Sunlight expressed their agency through some type of organized activity and participating in it in this case by participating in the various clubs, societies, and opportunities made available in the village. What if, however, the workers also express their agency through their inactivity, perhaps their lack of engagement with the opportunities allocated by the company? How might a sport historian capture or represent that kind of human agency? Not all the surviving records housed in the museum's archives buttress the museum's contention 
that workers appreciated and enjoyed the cultural opportunities provided by Lieber Brothers. For example, the archives hold surviving issues of the Port Sunlight Monthly Journal, a publication originally created by Lever Brothers to report on local news and events, disseminate important information to village residents, and serve as an informational bridge between the company and the residents. Now in the 1890s, the first decade of the village, issues of the monthly journal included the minutes and meetings of the village council, which was a governing body set up by Lieber Brothers to administer life in Port Sunlight. The council was comprised of various committees of elected worker residents, and each committee tasked with managing specific aspects of the, of the activities that occurred in the community. So there was an athletics committee, a finance committee, a musical committee, and so on. Within the first 10 years of Port Sunlight's founding, however, there was indeed a recurring problem of poor attendance at these committee and council meetings. And it was a particular problem for the athletics committee, which oversaw the allocation of funds for all the sporting clubs at Port Sunlight. Throughout the 1890s, the athletics committee was unable to hold regular meetings because they simply had an insufficient number of attendees. In 1895, the musical committee could not even submit a summary report of their activities to the village council because they couldn't even reach a quorum of sufficient members at any of their scheduled meetings that year. In other words, if these worker residents were fully engaged in the sporting and recreational opportunities available at Port Sunlight, they weren't necessarily expressing it through their attendance and engagement with those organized committee meetings. The topic speaks to theoretically one of a fundamental epistemological conundrums for a field like sport history. Much of the scholarship that we associate with a field like sport history typically concerns some form of activity as their empirical and conceptual locus, be it physical, organized, contest, play, a cultural practice shaped by the working conditions of the capitalist mode of production. By studying the history of sporting activities, Sport historians have illuminated the dialectic between the active body and the workings of modern power. Structurally, sport was, quote, a lagged byproduct of the Industrial Revolution, a site for extracting profit from the organizing and commodifying of physical activity. And now increasingly, sport historians engage with post-colonial, decolonial, and settler colonial theories, reframing their narratives with a focus on indigenous knowledge and understanding of activities entailing various degrees of physicality. Feminist sport historians have illuminated the agency of women who struggled to participate, succeed, and achieve equality in sporting contests, thereby directly challenging myths and ideologies as to the physical limitations of women. And yet, if we follow the deconstructionist message that the past is never fixed, if we're always looking back towards the sporting past from, our, from the perspective of our contemporary conjuncture, then we can also recognize that our discursive and retrospective analyses are always from an authorial context that now is being profoundly shaped by the clear and demonstrative effects of anthropocentric activity. We're indeed living in an era defined by the impact of human activity, the Anthropocene, the impact on the climate, environments, and our non-human counterparts, which is perhaps why there's been a recent uptick in books and treatises about the benefits of idleness of inactivity, of what New York Times bestselling author and artist Jenny O'Dell terms doing nothing, as people seek out an ontology that seems ecologically friendly and alternative 
to the acceleration of capital accumulation that's involved in limitless activity. In many ways, these ideas build off of a intellectual foundation that was laid a century previous. Writers like the Mar Marxist Paul Lafargue and the philosopher Bertrand Russell, who contend contended in the 1930s that, quote, there is far too much work done in the world and that immense harm is caused by the belief that work is virtuous and that what needs to be preached is something quite different from what has always been preached. Some, like the philosopher Brian O'Connor today, are re-examining the history of Western thought, Western epistemology, the underlying assumptions of work, of energy, and activity, suggesting that perhaps idleness, forms of inactivity, can be reimagined and promoted as forms of human freedom. But the question is, what would a sport history of inactivity even look like? What would be the empirical site for analysis? If we go back to the case study of Port Sunlight before us, what would constitute a kind of Ginsbergian clue that could help us cut through the representational gloss that covers all these documents that were produced by Lever Brothers that survive today and are now preserved by the museum at Port Sunlight? How might we better understand the subjectivities of those workers who express their agency in a myriad of ways in sort of dialectic relationship with the relations of production related to Lever Brothers, and in part through the lack of participation, perhaps, in the cultural amenities and opportunities made available at Port Sunlight. Can we reimagine the sporting history of the village in ways that give voice to those workers who, for whatever reasons, decline to participate? Now, what I'm suggesting in this brief presentation is that historical case studies, like the issue of attendance at the village council meetings at Port Sunlight, while they may at first seem a bit unrelated, can provide some tantalizing clues about the role of inactivity or apathy, lack of participation and engagement in working class experiences of modern sport, in this case, industrial sport. They guide us to questions about inactivity that can prevent that can then perhaps lead to even more nuanced considerations about the politics of representation in sport history and perhaps its association with the logic of anthropocentric activity. Maybe a better understanding of the historical significance of various iterations of inactivity or doing nothing as we now write histories in the era of the Anthropocene. To begin with, we should recognize the impact of Lever Brothers and their ideas about industrial labor relations and its assumptions of productive activity. The impact of this on our contemporary understanding of the history of Port Sunlight. William Lever, a self-proclaimed reformer, was what one historian called an enlightened paternalist. He believed that providing forms of social welfare like high wages, healthy working conditions, decent housing for workers, facilities for recreation, education, and quote, moral elevation, were all vital parts of reforming working class life, a rational approach to labor relations. Lever pursued the development of Port Sunlight less as a philanthropic initiative and more in terms of business management. For an industrialist like Lever, housing, recreation, providing concerts and lectures, and sport could be used as instruments for labor control measures to benevolently regulate the lives of workers while maintaining supply, efficiency, and discipline. Quote, we must produce more 
but we need not produce under conditions of fatigue, Lever said during a speech amidst the First World War. We, can, we need to produce under conditions of comfort, an absence of fatigue, and without shutting out the brightness from life. This tension between securing the welfare of the workforce and pursuing capital efficiencies in production led Lever and other like-minded paternalist industrialists at the time to be quite heavy-handed in their involvement in the lives of workers. So in one illuminating example, Lever encouraged weekly winter dances at the auditorium of Port Sunlight for young men and women who worked at the factory. But every female worker at the factory was invited at least twice, and Lever was careful to maintain appropriate relations between the sexes, controlling who danced with whom. For female factory workers who were under the age of 18, the company assigned them a male dance partner. For those female employees over the age of 18, they were to submit the names of the men they wanted to dance with and have as a partner to Lever's social department, who would then make the final decision. For this and other related reasons, historian of Unilever Charles Wilson once called the Port Sunlight Scheme a manifestation of Lever's, quote, despotic benevolence. The Port Sunlight Museum today, through its exhibits and its curated displays, reinforces the ideology of Lever's business management and it, the way it privileges the sense of productive activity. For one, the museum emphasizes the importance of the village's available cultural amenities on the lives of the workers. One display on clubs and societies says that the company accommodated all sorts of interests and led to creating a thriving social scene. Residents enjoyed access to theater productions, exercise, sewing, arts and crafts classes, a literary society, a rifle club. On another display on health and well-being, excuse me, on health and well-being, visitors learned that Lever Brothers offered workers garden plots, a gymnasium, and an open swimming pool, the latter of which was one of the more popular amenities in the village. The museum highlights the stories of workers who seemingly enjoy their time and were grateful to live in the village. An Edwardian gardener named Albert, who won an award from the company for his prized flowers and vegetables and his upkeep of his garden allotment. A young girl named Daisy, who very much liked the local school and very much participated and enjoyed the local tennis club. A worker turned housewife named Ellen, whose family appreciated the ability to attend local concerts and plays, all facilitated and provided by Lever Brothers. The constructed take-home message at the museum is that Lever's concern for the protection of, his, protection of his workforce extended into their home lives. And the subjectivities and experiences of those factory workers were linked in important ways to the company-sanctioned objectives of producing and regulating a healthy, active, productive workforce. Now, it's not necessarily surprising that the Port Sunlight Museum would include exhibits that reproduce what we can now say is an essentially kind of Fordist perspective of Lever Brothers. The stated goal of the museum as part of the Village Trust is to showcase the story of what they call their special village. As scholar Michael Butterworth explains, museum exhibitions always reflect particular political commitments and interests. And the exhibits at the Port Sunlight Museum indeed reinforce Lever's own political vision of business and labor management by representing the worker residents as appreciative recipients of the company's welfare provisions. This is what Sharon McDonald called a particular form of representation that ideologically privileges the historical perspective of the company 
and obscures the possibility that workers dissented against the interests of Lieber brothers in various overt, subtle, and indeed inactive ways. The museum is an exhibitionary institution, as Tony Bennett once said, presenting history as unequivocal statements of fact, hiding the process of selection and omission, and the political nature, uses, and consequences of museum displays. Thus, the exhibits privilege and highlight stories of residents being active and productive in ways that were commensurate with Lever's paternalist vision. Well-kept gardens, popular winter dances and picnics, well-attended speeches, well-attended swimming pools, appreciative residents enjoying their leisure time on the bowling green. The May 1895 monthly journal reported that the opening of a bowling green at Port Sunlight was greeted with enthusiastic applause. While William Lever's brother, company co-founder James Darcy Lever, remarked that he was confident residents would not find anything more healthful and physically invigorating than the game of bowls. He trusted that they would enjoy many hours of pleasure and recreation on that green. Yet in the same issues of the monthly journal in the 1890s, the village council documented, kept track of attendance at meetings and used the pages of the journal to chastise residents when the attendance was low and continued to be low. The village council, it's important to remember, was always closely connected to the whims and decisions of the company. As James Hayes explains, although the members of the village council and its constituent committees were chosen democratically, the fact that it relied heavily on the company for funding meant that it couldn't really ignore management's wishes. Lever himself had read Samuel Smiles' book, Self-Help in his teens, and openly believed Port Sunlight could be this spatial agent for promoting the values of bettering oneself physically and mentally. The problem is when Lever Brothers created measures for workers to express their self-responsibility in the form of governing committees, many workers seemingly chose not to show up. Issues of the monthly journal reported that there was usually a fair or good attendance at meetings and to hope that the council could report a better list of attendances in the coming year than in the previous years past. While asking if committee members, quote, could make a little sacrifice, make some little sacrifice to attend all of the meetings of the council. There was but a moderate attendance in meetings later in 1895, and the monthly journal subsequently resorted to documenting attendance only when there was, to use one of their better phrases, a better attendance than usual. The monthly journal also made sure to document when a lack of oversight contributed to low attendance. <clears throat> in one particular instance in 1897, reporting that, quote, the attendance of adults has been exceedingly small at the gymnasium since the withdrawal of an instructor, thereby linking the worker agency to the guidance of an appointee from the company. Now, the limits of a conference presentation preclude a more in-depth exploration of attendance as a me measure of worker agency at Port Sunlight. But my point with the presentation was to explore the ways in which a sport historian could perhaps approach important historical and epistemological issues like human agency, which has been long, long debated and studied in ways that may not necessarily privilege or center some notion of activity. Surely there were Lever Brothers workers who appreciated or engaged in forms of sport and recreation at Port Sunlight and enjoyed a game of bowls on the green. And that experience should be noted and is important. And so should the agency of those who chose not to attend the meetings, who chose not to participate in the company-sanctioned company activities, who chose not to enjoy their leisure time on the bowling green, 
which is admittedly harder to represent. The contingencies now of climate change in the Anthropocene, which have all been made too apparent in the year 2020, do compel us in some way to turn our histories into what Raymond Williams once called resources of hope, meaning creative resources that can inform working class movements that are facing the anthropocentric forces of our present moment. And potentially inactivity can be a part of that discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sam. That's a wonderful talk. And I would invite people to use the reaction button at the button, uh, at the bottom even, as Raf has done to applaud. And we've got uh, 10 or so minutes for questions. So please get typing. Uh, I've got a comment from Mark. Thank you, Mark. Uh, which says, Port Sunlight had a successful ladies hockey team playing in the Liverpool Ladies Hockey League. And they've just discovered a cup presented to the league in 1926 by C.W. Barnish one of the managers and ensure many team uh, many of this team were workers at the factories and i guess part of my question running on for that is there any indication of how enclosed this was in terms of participation in sport was it people in the locality that participated was it only workers or did it extend its network into sort of the locality in a more general sense it does seem from uh my initial looking at the materials that sport and engagement in sport extended throughout the locality and into Liverpool. Um, I believe there was already, uh, for example, a football team, football club that was <clears throat> uh, participating and was quite popular in the area, even before Lever uh, decides to build the model village at Port Sunlight. Um, so it was relatively widespread. It was so popular that um, Lever had to um, address the, the, the popularity of athletics through the community. It was originally not necessarily a part of his plans for the model village at all. He uh, talked about um, other sort of uh, uh, leisure activities that weren't necessarily quite physical. Um, those were usually parts of the plan, but a lot of the workers were uh, so interested in sport that he was forced to create um, spaces for them to engage in those activities. And a lot of those opportunities or a lot of those clubs were already there um, before Ports One Light even uh, 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 was built. Okay, thank you. And sort of touching on this idea of inactivity that I think is really interesting. Connor asks, um, can you expand on the gender implications of inactivity? He says, from his own research on health, which I thoroughly recommend, it often seemed that male inactivity or rather man inactivity was linked to poor character and female inactivity is linked to physical deformity and unhealthy child rearing. So is there a difference in those two depictions of inactivity? What a difference in terms of what? Uh, how it was portrayed. Sort of different narratives at, for male inactivity and female inactivity. At Port Sunlight? Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's a really interesting question. I mean, if you look at so, if I go back to the village council meetings and the uh, the minutes that would be within these journals, most of those um, meetings, which is around the 1890s, were gender segregated. So these were committee meetings that were mostly populated by men, and the ones that were attending tended to be men that were sort of closer to the management of Port Sunlight. They weren't necessarily factory workers. Um, they were at the soapworks, but then uh, the men that were in the offices. 
Um, so when this question of attendance, so really my discussion of inactivity centers on the notion of attendance at, at the meetings as one sort of way, empirical way of getting at this uh, topic. Um, it, it's very sort of male dominant discussion. The, uh, the, the, the monthly journal, the company was quite careful in their publications that they distributed to the community and making sure that they emphasized um, how active actually the women were within the community. Uh, so it's gonna be, it's, it's an ongoing project. And I think there's, I need to think of other ways of sort of getting at the discussions of inactivity um, in terms of the women that were there. In terms of the men through the village council meetings, this, this notion of inactivity or uh, lack of attendance was seen in this sort of kind of, um, it's got a negation of the sort of the Fordist uh, principle of being productive. So it was kind of seen as that sort of evil of having idle hands and not using them for sort of uh, good capitalist purposes of being more productive um, in terms of their day. So um, the people that were tended to be glorified in local news in the monthly journal were those that gardened and those, the workers that weren't gardening would have their, sort of, uh, either have their housing revoked, their leases revoked, um, or in the case of these meetings, they would have these minutes where half the time they're not even talking about the business of the meetings and the committees, but the fact that they're just so upset that no one's showing up to take part in the meetings. Um, but that's a really important question, this notion of the, the gender specifics of discourses of idleness. Thank you. And I think touching on that, Barbara's asked a very good question here. Were any sanctions taken against those who chose inactivity rather than sporting activity? sanctions by the by the company um you know thinking back I, I think for most of so the time period that i was looking at was i tried to stick cl stay close to the period um when port sunlight was just being built and developed so from around 1887 um, going up to the 1900, which is around the time that like similar town planning movements like the Garden City movement um, really takes uh, precedence. And Port Sunlight becomes involved in a lot of these planning discussions. And there was a kind of, um, there was a kind of benevolent to Lever's rule and dictation within the, uh, the community. At times you could really see how involved he was with those winter dances and being so, um, uh, in control of what was occurring and what people were supposed to do. There wasn't, beyond um, the sort of public kind of criticism that he would do in his speeches, and Lever was quite, was quite active in, in um, visiting um, activities uh, within the community, attending concerts and always giving a speech. Uh, attending various dinners that were being hosted in the auditorium or the Gladstone Hall, which is where it, they had a lot of their sort of events and meetings. Even at once uh, attending like a, a, a game of bowls on the green. And so he used the monthly journal to sort of remind residents about sort of the self-help doctrine. Um, I, I haven't seen a lot of um, historical evidence 
as it were, about sanctions against inactivity. You know, the one main sanction was the, the fact that their lease depended upon it. That was mm-hmm. a really kind of explicit sanction. If they didn't do things like keep up their garden, um, then they could have their lease revoked. Um, and if they weren't seen as an active member within the community, then their ability to live in the housing um, could be in jeopardy. And there were multiple occasions where you can see in the local news where this happened, where, fa- where factory workers would have their leases revoked because of what they weren't doing um, within the community. But on the other side of that, then they would also have prizes for the best kept garden, right? So there's, there's a lot of various prizes and competitions set up by the company in order to sort of encourage this type of sort of self-help doctrine and self-responsibility, which they also did in the committee meetings, like Lever's goal with the committee meetings was, was for them to become somehow self-sustaining. And that's what made um, the lack of attendance such a particular prickly issue, I think, mm. for him and for management. Okay. I don't know if that answers the question. I think, yeah, very thorough answer, I think. Um, Joseph uh, has put a, a question similar to that, actually linked. Did Port Sunlight have a private police force in inverted commas? And how was crime dealt with? I don't, I'm not, I'm sure I know the exact answer to that question, but I believe in um, sort of the first decades, they did not. Mm. Um, I, I saw within multiple issues of the monthly journal this uh, concern about um, the interactions between the police, the police from the surrounding communities and uh, within Port Sunlight. So, for example, some uh, residents were upset about how long it would take for police to arrive if there was sort of an issue. There's a couple instances of um, gatherings or parties taking place within the community or, um, you know, in the few times that the athletics committee actually met and discussed issues, there was a a problem of vandalism. So young men going onto the field and sort of um, uh, breaking some of the equipment or taking some of the equipment. And uh, the committee members would talk of, of being sort of upset with the fact that it would take police so long just to get involved or be present within the community as well. Um, so I think that was, that was a particular issue. Okay, thank you. I think that wraps it up. Um, if I could ask you, there's a few more questions in the chat, Sam. If you'd like to answer those uh, privately uh, as we go on, that would be great. Uh, sure. Let's just have one more round of applause for Sam and we can move on to Alex. Um, so our next speaker uh, is Dr. Alexander Jackson. He's been curator at the National Football Museum since uh, uh, for over nine years. That's a long period of time. Um, and since 2014, he's been independently researching in his spare time on the history of football on the English home front during World War I. And today's paper comes from a chapter exploring the impact of the war on the football press, and it's called The Uses of Nostalgia and Reminiscence in English Football Writing During World War I. Take it away, Alex. Cheers. And this is a paper that, yes, I've been researching for quite some time, but uh, hopefully as we'll go along, you might uh, hopefully see how this has sort of become uh, something a little bit topical, at least in my mind. Uh, uh, So I'll just start off. So, on Saturday the 6th of October 1917, the Liverpool Football Echo provided its usual mixture of war and sports news. 
From the Western Front, it reported on a lull in the British offensive at Passchendaele. And at home, it covered the possibility of potato bread being introduced to avoid food shortages. Liverpool fans most likely turned straight to the back page to read about their 6-0 thrashing of Everton that afternoon. And Evertonians may have avoided such painful matters by instead turning to the inside pages, uh, where they could Scottish journalist Bruce Campbell offered a regular and light-hearted take on events in the football world. Although employed by the Sheffield Telegraph, uh, Campbell wrote a popular syndicated column across several football and weekend papers. And his topic that week was drawn from observing earlier correspondence between James Catton, seen here, uh, the editor of Athletic News and the country's foremost sporting journalist. And Catton had been in correspondence with a wounded Scottish soldier who had written to him to ask with some observations about great players of the past. The bulk of Campbell's column was taken up with, as he saw it, the fondness of the Scottish fan for selecting all-time great 11s. But he opened his column with a typically wry take on the subject of nostalgia. And he confessed that, in these days, when there's not so much current football to write about as there used to be, the result is that many of the scribes have taken to dealing with what an old friend called reminiscences. That was inevitable, and I plead guilty to doing it myself. At a time of crisis, seeking refuge in reminiscences is not unusual. Matthew Taylor has identified a similar turn to the past by newspapers and radio during the Second World War. While during March to June of this year, we've been treated to broadcasts of old games, curated highlights by former players such as Ian Wright, and even live minute-by-minute -minute descriptions of past games. Anything it seems to avoid, at least for a short while, the stresses and strains of the present crisis. So historians for some time have explored the popularity and importance of nostalgia in wartime society and culture. Jay Winters argued for considering two types of nostalgia, restorative and reflective. He writes that restorative nostalgia does not let go of the past, but posits its resurrection. Reflective nostalgia dwells more on what cannot be regained and perhaps what is best laid to rest. This presentation attempts to explore this idea by looking at two types of two broad types of nostalgic writing that were popular during the First World War. In terms of reflective nostalgia, it identified the growth of serialised autobiography during the war and interest from readers at the front in the game's history. Regarding restorative nostalgia, I'm also going to look at a little bit of the emergence of what I call the state of the game article that looked at the game's present and future in relation to its past. Here it's important to flag up a key feature of wartime football that I'll bri just briefly summarise. Contrary to some accounts, football did not cease at the end of 1914-15 season with an FA ban on the game. Instead, the FA banned only the payment of players and the award of trophies and medals. So the game continued and it attracted quite large audiences, but regional leagues with the rest of the, uh, the game continued as normal, except for players not being paid. And so some, such as the Nottingham Football Post, welcomed this new amateur game as holding a return to a game unsullied by excessive commercialisation, literally washed clean, as we can see in this cartoon. So any discussion of wartime football writing must, of course, acknowledge that history writing about the game, or writing, sorry, writing about the game's past was not new. In 1900, James Catt himself had produced one of the first books on the game's past, Whilst 1905 saw commercial publishers produce two notable histories, the four-volume Association Football and the Men Who Made It, 
whilst the Amalgamated Press produced a book of football, originally a serialised magazine and then reproduced in book format. So at this stage, voices of professional players are relatively rare. This is history by sort of newspaper men and the game's organisers. But in 1908, the Sheffield Green produced one of its first serialised autobiographies, telling the life story of Sheffield Wednesday in England star Fred Spikesley, following it in 1912 with that of Ernest Needham of Sheffield United and England. And elsewhere, the Scottish Record, which produced national and regional editions for Scotland, Ireland, Northern England and Yorkshire, utilised columns by players, some ghosted to a degree, some of which were beginning to address the early years and memories of leading professional players. And finally, it should be also recognised that fans looked to their local papers to solve debates, arguments about the game's past, using football annuals for statistics and dates, and also, where that failed, writing in to get the editor to answer their questions, a quite popular and sometimes frustrating chore for uh, local journalists. So with the 14-15 season, there's a concentration on the present, huge amount of change and turmoil going on. By the summer, is a bit of a different kettle of fish. By then, county and international cricket is shut down completely for the duration of the war, and that leaves a considerable gap for journalists to try and fill. And so, Thompson's Weekly News takes it up by filling it with the life stories of Colin Vetch of Newcastle United in England and former referee Herbert Bamlett, who controlled the 1914 FA Cup final before switching to club management with Oldham Athletic. Whilst journalists were no doubt involved in the production process, it's worth noting that Betch had written a newspaper column for many years, and this posed photograph, helping to reassure readers of the authenticity of the articles, is probably not far removed from reality. The Sheffield Green and also turned to autobiography that summer, telling the story of Sheffield Wednesday captain and Scotland star Andrew Wilson. In fact, planning would have taken place during the season, for the paper was able to announce that it would start this series the same weekend as the 1915 FA Cup final, which was perhaps solace for die-hard Sheffield Wednesday fans upset that Sheffield United had reached the final. There's a little bit of nostalgia getting away from what your uh, opponents on the other end of town are getting up to. In contrast to other serialised autobiographies of the period, this acknowledged the role of the journalist, framing it as a conversation between Wilson and Cam Bruce Campbell our well-known football contributor. And it arguably sets it apart in its quality and style, for the reader is invited to sit with Campbell and Wilson in the latter's garden, and to sympathise with Campbell's observation that the only fault of the garden is to lie at the top of one of Sheffield's many hills, necessitating a lament that the moving staircase that is so popular in London has not caught on in the provinces. Lasting for several months, each week Campbell returned to Wilson to discuss both his career and his opinions on the game. And the uses of such material were apparent to the Yorkshire Weekly Record, which Bruce Campbell also regularly wrote for. It too carried a serialised autobiography by Wilson's counterpart at Sheffield United, George Utley, in the summer of 1915. And so this gradual shift became more significant from the summer of 1916 onwards. The Yorkshire Weekly Record took things to a different level in the summer of 1916, advertising no less than six serialised autobiographies, five from football and one from Northern Rugby Union. Readers were treated to tales by leading players and officials from Northeastern and Yorkshire clubs. And this continued into 1718 with further articles by journalists and players selecting their all-time great, uh, great players or best 11s as we can see here with Burns Campbell again picking out uh, a best of England and Scotland. 
And so this was an emphasis on reliving the game's glorious past. And the only occasion when the war or the present might crop up was when it came to recounting tours of Austria and Germany during the pre-war years. And this, in these cases, cultural differences over shoulder charging, substitutes, or even access to water during games could be reinterpreted as early evidence of the unsporting nature of the enemy, who were held to have broken numerous rules of warfare. Uh, but in the main, it was uh, focusing firmly on the past as a means of distraction from the present. And the weekly record wasn't the only paper to do this. The Birmingham Sports Argust had a regular Boys of the Old Brigade column reminiscing, reminiscing through 15 and 16, uh, whilst its experienced nomad, uh, the pen name of one of its writers, provided historical uh, thoughts of his own, often drawing upon Catton's writing in Athletic News or the Sporting Chronicle. Whilst in the Lancashire Evening Post produced a series in 1916, providing a, a series looking at the popular articles, uh, providing popular articles on the great days of the club's past. So one of the roles in, so part of this is coming from journalists filling a vacuum in space. It's practical, it's uh, prosaic. On the other hand, it's actually about meeting an emotional need as well. Um, as this cartoon from the whole Sportsman illustrates, showing its paper passing from home through the ranks up to the men at the front line, uh, papers can see themselves as playing a key role in supporting military morale. Many of yesterday's fans were, of course, today's servicemen. And they continued to write into papers to ask them to help settle arguments, like Private Jay Connolly writing to the editor of the Nottingham Football Post to, to tell him that myself and a long eaten pal were on sentry in the trenches the other night, and we had an argument about the Rams and their cup ties. Would you be kind enough to publish the team's Derby County beat in the English Cup, the year they lost to Bristol City in the semi-final after the replay? Which is a long way of saying, I don't quite remember the year of this, but can you help me out, please? Uh, but others also asked for longer pieces. James Catton received letters asking for or suggesting articles on famous, uh, famous or older players. And for him, quote, these letters are like bracing breezes on a mountaintop to me, when there is so much to wrinkle the brow and make, one heart, make one's heart ache. The front lines were no abstraction for Catton. He had a son serving there who was wounded with the Canadian infantry, and his colleagues were also serving there. And to know that he was supporting those at the front was something to be prized. So if this is nostalgia as escapism, or return to the idea that also it can offer a vision of the future. By 1916, football riders experienced their first season of the new amateur football, in which the payment of players had been forbidden. Over the following season, several writers produced state of the game articles that either discussed the perceived value of the wartime game, or looked ahead to what the post-war period might be in light of past and present developments. The past itself was divided into two eras, the amateur from, a, from the 1860s to 1885, and the professional from 1885 to 1915. Those nostalgic for the former were apt to criticise the latter and see wartime football as a welcome restoration of key features of that golden era. They hoped for this to be, world to potentially be restored in the post-war era as well, with the worst features of the professional era, such as large transfer fees, imported players, players not having jobs during the week, Permanently banished by wartime reform. And one of the key voices within this was uh, Bruce Campbell's editor at the Sheffield Telegraph, Alfred Martin, and also uh, president of the National Union of Journalists in 1917, so quite a prominent figure. And he produced in 1917 a series of articles on the future of sport, arguing for 
pleasure in moderation. Uh, and there's a little quote, lengthy quote here that I'll just read that I think is quite apt in some ways. So some of the things we're discussing these days. Let us say at once that prior to the outbreak of the war, we had quite made up our minds that we had just about reached the limit so far as professional football was concerned. And that unless those who had power to intervene and compel clubs to adopt saner and more business-like methods, and also insist that national industries and national interests must be safeguarded against the commercial activities imported into the game, it would have a rude awakening. Once the country was faced with a crisis or thrown off its normal pivot, we pointed this out more than once in this column. And so for writers like him and Catton and others who had lived through the game's earlier days, wartime football was indeed restorative. Arthur Brearley of the Lancashire Evening Post expressed his admiration for the manner in which players overcame all obstacles to play, uh, rushing from work, getting their dinners very quickly, playing for uh, just a few shillings expenses. And he likened it to the old amateur game, something of the old balance is being redressed. And that although younger, Harry Hill of the Birmingham Sports Argos, its sports editor, born in 1876, shared a similar view. He wrote, Do you know, I'm almost inclined to hope that after the war, football will find its proper level. Do we want the huge playing pitches and palatial offices? Do we need a staff of 30 or 40 young men pampered a whole week and playing one afternoon to enjoy our football? I'm inclined to say no. Let us accept football as a genuine medium of recreation and relaxation with the wartime edition of means of doing good. On the other hand, some writers were critical of this sort of nostalgic view of the, both the current game and the value of the, the game's past. A particular bug there was the idea that it would be much better for players to have jobs during the week and to, uh, as opposed to doing uh, 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 training. Uh, uh, many players have now had to go back into essential industries, such as munitions factories or working coal mines. And this cartoon shows there's something of an idealised idea uh, uh, going on here. Frederick Lintott of the Yorkshire Sports, uh, brother of Evelyn Lintott, chairman of the Players' Union, uh, and Lintott, Frederick had edited the Players' Union magazine before the war, decried the nonsense written about jobs for, play, uh, for players, arguing that it would simply lead to the old game of finding soft jobs for star footballers. And neither was Bruce Campbell convinced by this vision of a post-war society. He wrote, we are fighting this war in order that Europe in general, and Britain in particular, may be a better place to live in than before. And a country in which you work 14 hours a day, six days a week, doesn't strike me as being a healthy place to live in. For men like Campbell and Lintock, some elements of the past were best left behind. So in conclusion, these debates, whilst fascinating to the modern historian, perhaps better reflect the contemporary concerns of middle-class sports writers immersed in their profession and favourite sport. For ordinary fans, reminiscing whilst reading about Newcastle United winning the cup, which they uh, actually managed to do in that period, or picking one's all-time England and Scotland teams was probably more enjoyable and more common. Bruce Campbell doubted whether any real insight could be gathered from selecting your all-time star 11s, but as he acknowledged, I don't suppose that will stop people from doing it, and at any rate, it is good to know that the old game is still magnetic enough to cause a weary warrior to forget his wounds for an hour or two, and to make him write to the papers about it. Carry on, my lads. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alex. <coughs> um, really interesting, particularly with our, our current situation, as you said, 
this idea of nostalgia and past games. And we've got a couple of questions coming in. So remember, keep the questions in the chat at the bottom and I will get through as many as we can. And Connor asks, did football clubs try to commercialise this nostalgia during the 1920s? Um, they, no, I would probably say that the clubs themselves weren't commercially minded in that uh, sense. Uh, what's interesting is the format of the autobiographies definitely continues uh, and becomes a regular feature of interwar sports writing and papers like Thompson's Weekly News. So post-World War II, it moves into book format, but actually, crucially, it's there throughout the interwar period. So journalists themselves have decided that the, the genre works. It's a good way of filling perhaps some of the summer space for people who are less interested in cricket. Uh, and for players, it's a useful uh, way of making some extra money if you're a star leading player. So you would often be very top names or if you won the cup, uh, if you were the team captain, you could possibly expect an offer. And uh, no, talking from the authors of a biography of uh, Fred Spikesley, you could expect about a couple of hundred pounds, which is no small change for obviously for a, a player. It's probably not too far off about two thirds of a, a year's income to do your life story. Uh, so it's probably players and newspapers who are benefiting from that, so to speak. Hey, thank you. Uh, from Steve Bolton here, do you think that the high-profile women's football of the time was viewed as a sort of naive nostalgia to the purer days? It's interesting. Um, I think because it's the, the, in the 1890s, women's football had been so relatively short-lived uh, that there's less nostalgia around the idea of women, women playing. I think it's just viewed as being so new. Uh, even though it had been new in the 1890s, it had been uh, quickly sort of rejected by many male uh, members of the public and our administrators, and many still do in the First World War, but more come round to the idea that it, it has, can be can, different to different degrees, can be supported on its own terms. So, but I think it's very much emphasised as just a radical break, I think, when you see the, the reports of women's football in that period. So it's quite interesting, it's quite a, yeah, a different contrast of how it's sort of the history of women's football. It's essentially been forgotten. And you only get occasional references by male sports writers who may have seen games in the 1890s. Uh, so, yeah, so it's very much the shock of the new there. Hmm. Thank you. Um, my own question, sort of this idea of nostalgia being a powerful force. In, in Dutch football after World War One, you get um, small groups who through this sort of nostalgia for the pre-1900 days form a sort of not a political but a a quasi-political force in in sport is there any evidence that in the 1920s this nostalgia was used to form sort of groups or unions who were trying to change various aspects of the game well the players union uh, comes to an end at the 1950 or has to stop activities partly because of the professionalism ceased to exist. You mm. mem uh, members are scattered during the war, and you uh, leadership as well. And then, what's interesting at the end of the end of the war, there is uh, some leading FA officials are quite keen, uh, pop trying to popularise the idea of perhaps we can have uh, a return to some of the more controlled uh, aspects of player work relationships at clubs. So limited pay, more the idea you need to have a job, that kind of stuff. Very much sort of managed professionalism in the sort of 1870s semi-professional mode and the players union players are very quick to say link the end of the war to a demand to like right we've actually spent several years playing for nothing essentially just expenses uh, unlike 
people in music halls and theatres, other professional entertainers, if you take that approach to it, have been all being paid during the war. We haven't. We've made a big sacrifice. What is the war going to bring us? We want to have to be paid and we want to actually have our wages improved. And so players' wages rise after the war slightly and then they're reduced nearly 20s as the wider depression of that era hits in. So you have these two conflicting, essentially players get there. There's some resistance by some administrators. They're a bit grudging. At the same time, they realise that they need to, you know, I think some administrators are, don't want to return to that pre-1870s kind of world, or rather 1870s world. I've got a note here from Karen who says, just to be pedantic, and if you can't be pedantic at uh, an academic conference, I don't know where you can be. Um, said, women first recorded playing football in Scotland in 1630, uh, which is news to me, but that's something definitely to remember. Um, I've got a question. You used the phrase Remy nuisances. What does that mean? <laughs> Slightly it, I think it's, it's lovely. It's, it's what Chris <coughs> Campbell refers to it. And I think it's a very sort of, he's very alive to the uses of uh, sports writers and how mm. they choose that. You know, at the end of the day, uh, to a certain degree, it's about producing copy, isn't it? You get copy from wherever you can find it. And talking about the past is, is brilliant because we can all do it for ages. We can all, and you know, we, we do it ourselves, aren't we? When we're at BSSH normally in the pub afterwards, we'll have some degree of reminiscencing about games we've seen or players or subject matters or even past conferences mm. um, and so he's quite aware that in some ways it's just a very easy way to fill this space uh, and you can trigger a debate very easily it's like in the same way that radio shows and tv shows do now it's like we need to fill some space let's select our best 11 who's the best of this period set up an opinion debate discuss uh, i said to him he and his style was very ironic and laconic uh, shall we say and so he was often poking holes in his weekly columns, a whole range of different subjects. And this is just one of them, where he's gently taking apart his own trade and craft to a degree, which is mm. quite refreshing in a sense. Okay, thinking about that a little bit, this sort of the idea of the purpose of history, sort of writing history is what we're, we're discussing. Do you, do you see your research helping inform anything today? Um, any sort of stark contrasts with current practice in this idea of thinking about the past, nostalgia? Uh, well, what I, th I think was interesting at the start of lockdown, we started to see some of these initial discussions about what should the game be going forward. And I think we sort of, we then had the return to the game. And I think those discussions about what the game will be uh, will still take place. I think what's interesting is where it matters most is at the grassroots. I think that's where the big profound impact is going to be at sort of, or I should say, semi-professional level uh, for all those clubs outside of the football league, down in the pyramid, whether they get spectators or not, whether they can continue or not, is a huge big challenge. And during the First World War, a lot of those clubs folded, went under to re-emerge three or four years later, or sometimes never to re-emerge. And I think that we can concentrate on the big clubs a lot. It's about those clubs in the middle tier, which mm -hmm. in these kind of topics and reminiscence get still can get cut out or ignored. And so I think the research around the first order, I, I think there's a lot that speaks at a moment national crisis. Some of this around the economic side probably lies outside of this discussion. In a sense, that's a separate topic. Mm. Uh, an interesting question here from Malcolm McLean. What uh, is, can you unpack a little more how Winter's distinction between reflective and restorative nostalgia helps make sense of this evidence you've presented? It's, and it's an interesting one because I'm still, I'd be honest, I'd, I'd probably enjoy discussing it with other people as well because uh, I'm trying to get my head around the theory side of it. Uh, 
I found it useful for breaking down these two types. Uh, I think when he was talking, I just need to go back up to the top, when he was, he did make it sound the, very much the emphasis on the, um, the unhappy melancholic side of nostalgia. I think if anyone's seen Mad Men, where, where there's the end of season one, there's that lovely uh, use of the Kodak camera and the things and the childhood memories and talking about nostalgia is to literally ache for a time that's passed. I think what I kind of would try to wanted to argue at one point was there's almost a third strand of it. And this nostalgia to a degree is can actually also just be really enjoyable and fun. It can take you to a happy place. Or if the past is a happy place, we can go there. It doesn't necessarily make us sad all of the time. Hence why we do it to a degree. And so I think what you saw with these men in the trenches, it was an escape. If you want to argue with your mate whilst you're bored and cold and a trench in the front line about whether Derby County, like uh, who exactly was in the, who Derby had beat or, there's several other ones where I've got guys having regular debates uh, with guys at the front line. People that are saying, like, oh, I had another discussion with my mate. You just won't have it. Just like, tell, can you tell me who played at left back for Derby in the ninth, you know, in the cup final against Berry? Because he, he just tells me, punched me, queuing, didn't play, and I won't have it. Just, just tell me I'm right. And so it's, 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 it's that kind of level of almost like pub level conversations as well. But because of the, they take on a whole extra meaning and poignancy, especially now when you see them through these letters come through regularly uh, at the time. And obviously they meant a huge amount. If you're a journalist at home, you're over age, you can't serve. You're trying to find meaning in your own life and work. Mm -hmm. And one way to do that is to connect to these men to provide the thing they're asking for is just information. If you can do that, it's hugely positive to how you view yourself and your role in the war effort. And, to men like Catton and uh, Campbell, they are deeply patriotic in the sense of they've been brought up in that late Edwardian, sorry, Victorian and early Edwardian empire. They are men of empire in that particular sense. And so they see supporting the empire and the, the, the nation in this battle in however small a form as part of their patriotic duty, which is, is important to understand in their terms, not you know, in a sense. Thank you. And uh, thank you for answering those questions. I'll just leave the final word to Malcolm. So that's a good point, RE melancholia, which we all too mistakenly transmute into pessimism. So perhaps it isn't always as pessimistic as we like to think. And on that somewhat, I guess, cheery note, we'll move on to thank you very much, uh, Alex Bowe. I'll just thank you. Thanks use for the, the emoticons again to register some claps. We'll move on to our final speaker, Sarah Hardstuff. Uh, and Sarah's recently completed her PhD in education at the University of Cambridge, specialising in children's literature and the works of Mildred Taylor and Cynthia Voigt. And Sarah's currently developing two projects, one on representation identity in football fiction for young people, and one on conceptualisations of growth in children's literature. And her talk today is entitled Identity, Representation and Coming of Age in Football Fiction for Children. Over to you, Sarah. Thanks, Nick, and thank you everyone for, for being with us in the, the virtual conference space. It's a, a different type of conference experience for me. Um, and thank you as well for allowing me as a non-historian to uh, gatecrash your history conference. Um, and then just a couple more kind of thank yous before I get into to what I'm going to talk about. Um, I wanted to thank the BSSH um, who funded a research visit last October to um, the National Football Museum Archive in Preston to kick off the project. Um, and thanks as well to uh, Brianna McDaniel and Josh Simpson um, of the Research Network 
researchers exploring inclusive youth literature um, for their help in developing some of these ideas. Um, so the project I'm going to talk about today is still very much in its infancy. Um, I had hoped to be a bit further along by the time I was going to be talking to you, but 2020 um, had other ideas, other plans. Um, but essentially, the, the kind of, there are various kind of drivers and, and starting points um, for my you know, kind of interest in, in the topic. Um, the original starting point back in the kind of mists of time um, came kind of 20 plus years ago. Um, when I, um, as a teenager, stopped playing football um, because I moved to a school that had no provision for, for girls' football. Um, so this question of identity and representation in children's literature, media, culture, uh, you know, the question of who is presented as being interested in football, as being able to play football, is kind of personally important to me as well. Oh, sorry, I think my screen might have gone to sleep. The perils of Zoom. Okay, so just to set the scene a little bit um, and introduce some of the issues around um, representation in children's books as a whole. Um, the Centre for Literacy in Primary Education um, has been kind of monitoring diversity in children's books for the last couple of years in the UK. Um, in autumn last year, they released their findings that of all the children's books published in the UK in 2018, um, only 7% featured a black or ethnic minority character. Um, only 4% had a black or ethnic minority main character. And um, so this represented a slight increase from 2017, um, but still, you know, isn't representative of the demographics of, of certainly of this age group of, of, um, of school children that they're interested in kind of representing. And this, um, these kind of headline figures really got me thinking because when I think about football books for children, um, this kind of, you know, you see a lot more um, ethnic diversity, I think. Um, and so while there is an issue with sports, book, sports books being potentially the only literature where children see ethnic diversity, um, there's also a sense in which these books have got a lot to say uh, and contribute to discussions um, about diversity and representation in children's literature at large. Um, but although children's football fiction tends to feature, you know, a kind of diverse range of characters, experiences and, and issues, um, this, you know, body of literature is rarely mentioned in children's literature criticism. Um, there aren't enough, you know, sports historians in, in children's literature criticism. Um, there is some research that focuses on fictional depictions of girls' access to sports uh, in the North American context. Um, football is very briefly mentioned. I think it's a footnote um, mentioned as a class marker in children's books in um, Haru Takeuchi's book, British Working Class Writing for Children. 
Um, football as a theme in fiction also pops up in uh, Rosemary Stone's bibliography of progressive books in Robert Leeson's Reading and Writing, um, which was published in 1985. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but there is a lot more that could be done in terms of identifying and researching these texts. Uh, and there are potential, uh, potential benefits for a kind of wider collection of stakeholders as well. Um, so the Centre for Literacy and Primary Education um, do most of their work with schools. Uh, and, you know, I'm thinking too of a scheme like um, Premier League Reading Stars, which sought to kind of harness the popularity and reach of football to encourage uh, reading for pleasure and literacy development. Um, and an impact report for that scheme uh, in 2015 to 16 um, identified areas for improvement around increasing the variety of reading material um, and increased representation of female footballers. So there is uh, this kind of wider need beyond the academy, um, looking into education, looking into publishing um, and football itself um, for a kind of systematic overview um, of football fiction um, and who is represented within it. So as I said, this is still very much in the kind of beginning phases. Um, so I'm definitely presenting it as a kind of work in progress. Um, but these are some of the questions that I've been thinking about and mulling over um, while kind of you know, reading and looking into the primary text. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, kind of primarily interested in finding out what identities are represented in football fiction of the past 20 years, um, how these identities are represented, um, how the relationship between individuals and societies is portrayed, um, whether these stories are, um, you know, kind of building on that to, to ask whether these stories are coming of age narratives, um, what kind of barriers or complications um, to the protagonist's growth are featured, uh, you know, what kind of social determining factors um, are explored within the, the fiction, um, and how are these barriers kind of overcome or challenged or critiqued. And so in thinking through um, some of these key concepts around identity and, and representation, um, I'm drawing on uh, a growing tradition really in children's literature criticism um, of post-colonial readings, um, multicultural and critical race theory informed readings of children's literature. Um, so for example, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas's recent book, The Dark Fantastic, um, looks at the role played by marginalised black characters in big blockbuster fantasy texts such as Harry Potter and The Hunger Games. So there's a lot of kind of overlap with pop culture studies here as well. Um, the other important thing that Thomas does in that book is pay kind of close attention to the ways in which um, marginalised identities overlap and intersect. And um, for example, considering race and gender or race and class um, and thinking as well about the the kind of social barriers so not just about um not just about including individuals but what are the kind of broader um 
social barriers to be overcome. So thinking again as a, as a work in progress, what the kind of methods and scope of this study might be. Um, and this is, if you, can, uh, if you can see the picture here, this is the, um, the Cambridge Rules sculpture on Parker's Peace in Cambridge. Um, so thinking through my own kind of research rules for the project. Um, I've chosen to focus on the, the past 20 years, um, largely um, because the last sort of systematic bibliography of football fiction for young people that I have found um, is included kind of as subsections of Peter Seddon's Football Compendium, uh, which was last updated for 1999. So we kind of have a list already of all the sort of football fiction for young people published up to that date. Um, so that does leave this kind of significant gap um, over a time period in which you know, football has changed a lot, children's literature has changed a lot, and obviously society has changed. Um, and obviously, looking at representation, I am interested in social change and how that is reflected in fiction. Um, but I don't also don't want to discount the, um, the continuity that we see in a lot of these football stories. Uh, so one of the really interesting findings from being in the archive and hearing more about um, Alex's research is that from you know the 1800s to the present day there's a surprisingly persistent set of um, storylines and themes and tropes that come up in football stories and um, so mystery stories detective tropes uh, barriers to participation whether that's um, uh, because of injury, um, because of social class, because of gender, um, and increasingly in the kind of later 20th century texts, this uh, concept of football as a, as a rags to riches profession. So I want to see essentially, you know, what's been happening for the last 20 years while kind of trying to stay aware of that history. Um, so then the, the first step uh following on from kind of um you know specking all this out uh will be to create a bibliography for the time period um so in terms of generating that kind of initial corpus list that would be a case of um you know kind of looking at the holdings of uh, a legal deposit library um for example the university library at cambridge has a, a tag i think it's soccer stories um, there's a tag that's kind of soccer stories, juvenile fiction, um, which, you know, kind of throws up a few hundred results for this date range. Um, that will be quite, you know, that is quite a crude measure. And I already know that that doesn't include um, examples of texts that I consider to kind of have enough football in um, to make me want to write about them. Um, so they'll be kind of supplementary information to sort of factor in um, and further thinking to do about which texts are included. Um, so from that list, uh, I would look to create um, an annotated bibliography, um, which would include information about genre, um, information about themes relating to 
um, you know, the main themes of the work and also um, issues of identity and representation. Um, and following the Centre for Literacy and Primary Education, looking um, at identities of characters. Um, but I would hope to kind of try and broaden that out wider than looking um, at ethnicity um, and include information about uh, race, class, nationality, gender, sexual orientation, disability, um, and depending, you know, depending on the texts, this might need to be widened out a bit more. So to add in information about, um, say, uh, migration status or kind of other forms of, of marginalization that are um, important within, within the story. So I'll show you an example of what, you know, what the first phase of the research looks like. And then I'll kind of come back to um, thinking about what will happen in the, in the follow-up phase, um, which will involve close readings um, of a select group of texts. Now, hopefully I'll be able to zoom into this at the moment. So this is, you know, kind of what the, the beginning phase of the research looks like. Um, you know, right now it is a labor of love, so, so progress has been quite slow. Um, I'm just starting off by kind of auditing some of the books that I um, already own and I'm familiar with um, for going, developing the full bibliography. So the intention here is to, to kind of build a database which functions both um, as a record of the children's football books published in this time period um, and as a, you know, a kind of diversity audit um, to complement the work um, being done by the Centre for Literacy and Primary Education in the UK, um, in the United States, the uh, Cooperative um, Centre for Children's Books. I think I might have got that the wrong way around, but there's a, you know, an organization in the United States that, that produces similar data um, for books published in the US. Um, so you can kind of see here how I'm you know, kind of planning to go about this. Um, some of the information being catalogued here you know, is, going, is going to be subject to change. Um, I'm anticipating needing to split some of this out a bit more. Uh, and to standardize some of the tags um, and descriptors being used in order to kind of allow this to function as a database. So ideally, ideally you will be able to, you know, filter for, you know, every example of a football story that is also a school story um, or every example of a football story that also talks about religion. Um, and that's the kind of ultimate aim. Uh, and there are also some decisions that need to be made about genre, um, both in terms of kind of classifying individual texts um, and deciding what to include. So kind of coming back to the question of scope. So you can see right here at the top, I'll just scroll in, zoom in a bit. Right here at the top, this first entry is um, The Black Flamingo by Dean Atta, uh, which is a young adult verse novel um, which tells the, the coming of age story of Michael, uh, who's a black mixed race gay character. Um, but going by the kind of typical uh, library cataloging, this isn't actually a football story at all. Um, so I've included it here in this initial audit um, because there is a secondary character who plays football 
And there are some really interesting references to football within the novel. Um, for example, the football coach at Michael's school um, wears rainbow laces on his boots, uh, which makes Michael feel more kind of confident in, in himself and his sexual orientation. So I'm still trying to figure out the best way to capture this kind of example where football is important to the story without kind of claiming it um, as a football story, um, as a kind of genre. So there are still lots of um, questions to answer there about method. And then once this database has been created, it can be, it can be shared. Um, it, you know, it will also allow me to produce some kind of headline diversity statistics, um, which is where you know, the tags might need to become more standardized, possibly more uh, granular. Um, you know, for example, you know, it's one thing to say X percent of the texts talk about racism, X percent of the texts feature a BAME main character. But, you know, the BAME is a kind of problematic umbrella term that actually, what does that tell you? You might need to break that down a bit, a, a bit further. And then just to kind of finish off, um, I've highlighted, I need to make this smaller again, I've highlighted in this list um, some examples of texts um, that following on from the, the kind of initial production of the bibliography, um, I'd like to look at some of the texts in much greater detail um, and do kind of deep dive close readings uh, of the ways in which different identities are represented. Um, how the story factors into the kind of classic coming of age story arc uh, of a lot of children's literature, um, where certainly, you know, kind of middle grade and young adult uh, fiction has these, you know, these, these kind of elements of discovery, growth, maturation, learning about society, how the individual fits into that society. Um, so kind of an example of, of how this framework might work in practice is if you look at um, a book like Keeper by Mal Peet, um, you can think about, well, how does, uh, how is the development of El Gato's footballing skill and subsequent career um, kind of conceptualized alongside um, and in comparison to um, the development of the rainforest where he's from by um, expansionist corporations. So looking more closely into issues around um, labour, uh, displacement and social class. So the intention here is to look at, you know, kind of some of the conceptual issues in greater depth, um, but also to model um, what kind of work can be done with this, you know, kind of amazing um, corpus of texts um, and hopefully stimulate more discussion and more research. So I will stop sharing there. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, wonderful. I would be clapping again with the emoticons. And we've got time for a few questions here. And the first one comes from Connor. Uh, so asking about the demographics of the authors. Ask, has the demographics of the authors changed in the past two or three decades, to your knowledge? Um, I think it's a, really, it's a really good question. And again, it's something to think about um, whether to include. Um, 
I would say certainly in the last um, five years, there's been um, a kind of push um, within children's publishing based off um, a kind of hashtag campaign called Own Voices. Um, so uh, disabled authors, um, uh, fame authors talking about own voices texts. Um, is That's a kind of big, uh, it's kind of a publishing trend, but the, the sort of impetus is there to, to hopefully, you know, um, convert that into a kind of a longer term movement. Um, I think with some of the texts earlier on in the time period that I'm looking at, uh, there is, and even later, to be honest, there are lots of texts, particularly there are a couple um, looking um, uh, in Palestine, uh, one set in Indonesia, um, where the authors are, are, are you know, white British um, are not own voices authors. Um, and they, you know, they kind of talk about how much, you know, the, the research that they've done. Um, so it would be interesting to see what differences there are um, between those texts and own voices texts, uh, especially around, I think one of the themes that's really consistent is the idea of football as this kind of amazing universal thing and we can all we can all empathize with a refugee character who also plays football mm. uh you know with a character who works in a, a football boot factory who also loves football and so these are the kind of characters that we see and, and um there's yeah an interesting question about whether they're sort of authentic or just kind of um to sort of inspire kind of empathy and mm. Yeah, I think it's a lot of interesting intersections, certainly uh, there. Uh, Matt Taylor, good afternoon, Matt, has asked a question. Are you just looking at fiction for young people? Uh, and he says, Helen um, Pilichatti has written at least one factual book alongside uh, her female uh, books, uh, Girls FC. And he remembers that Marta was included in one of the volumes of Good Night Stories from Rebel Girls. So is it just young fiction or is there a potential to expand that? I mean, I think there is potential to expand that, but that's where I would probably kind of need more help from from others um, because my background is very much in um, in youth fiction. Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, like uh, Helen Pilahati is definitely, you know, definitely on the list. Um, Do goalkeepers wear tiaras? Is perhaps one of the best examples of what I'm talking about because the girls have to set up their own team. So it's a really good example of where there are kind of structural barriers to participation. Um, so it, it's, it's not a story that just says, here are girls, they put, they're playing football. It's, it's actually exploring, well, how, how do you make that happen? Um, but yeah, I would definitely be interested in, in, in looking, in looking at nonfiction as well. There's, um, there's there's a real kind of question mark over nonfiction because there are so many creative biographies um, uh, for young readers. I'm thinking of you know the kind of Matt and Tom Oldfield books, um, and there's lots of kind of creative historical fiction. So Alex, uh, after listening to Alex's talk, uh, I'm sure no one will be surprised to hear that there are 
millions of picture books depicting the Christmas truce um, that we see kind of particularly um, in the last 10 years when we've been thinking more about, about commemoration. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, there, there are big question marks about sort of what to include and I think it will depend on um, whether the project can kind of get off the ground in terms of finding kind of institutional support and, mm. um, and, and funding and all of those less glamorous things. <laughs> yeah, I think on that, Raf's got a, a question. Um, where do you envisage the database being made available and who do you envisage using it? Um, so, I mean, available ideally um, you know, just us. Um, there's a really cool project that I've been sort of tangentially involved in um, called uh, Our Mythic Childhood Survey, mm -hmm. um, which is a much kind of bigger, enormous international project um, that looks at uh, looks at depictions of mythology in children's literature. Um, and they have, you know, their database is just available online. You can go, you can search by um, by genre, by tag. You know, you can just go and say, okay, well, I want to know um, what video games are based on, you know, the story of Apollo or whatever it happens to be. Mm. So that that's the kind of ideal end product. Um, and they have been very kind of um, um, set on producing accessible descriptions and making sure that that everything is is as accessible as it can be um, so yeah certainly teachers publishers um, librarians uh, I mean a lot of this work about representation in children's literature is driven by librarians um, because they're the ones who are kind of fielding the requests from the young people um, so you know that's where a lot of the foundational work comes from um, and then I do think hopefully hopefully people in the footballing world as well um you know there are football clubs who who publish books um footballers write books um or you know have books written with their name on um and there are these kind of big initiatives like the premier league um reading stars um and it might be a case of you know trying to trying to kind of link up and help clubs when they're developing their educational material and, and that kind of thing as well yeah no i mean it certainly sounds like there's a lot of scope as well for thinking about how it how the literature constructs who is actually playing sport as well so in the future that might be useful um research for that uh karen has a very positive one do you need extra readers I mean, yes, Karen. Yes, <laughs> let's do that. Let's, uh, if anyone wants to kind of, um, if anyone wants to chat and uh, maybe talk about how we can put together a funding bid and and make this happen as a, a kind of a, a big project, then then yeah, I would, I'd be very keen to to kind of link up with people and and talk about that more. Yeah, and sort of on, on that sort of offering help, Matt McDowell has, has pointed out that the um, University of Edinburgh has Murray House Library, which has lots of children's literature. A lot of it might be useful for that. And we'll just take this one last question here from Malcolm McLean. Um, he's pointed out that there's a lot of 
uh, it's just gone from my screen, but yeah, points out that many of these issues are explored quite well in the Australian TV show uh, for young adults called Mustangs FC. Are you considering some multimedia exploration or just limit it, limiting it to print media at the moment? Um, I mean, at the moment, um, print media, um, I kind of envisaging me sort of on my own in a library, but, but if it's something that does grow, um, yeah, I mean, TV, film, video games, um, I've really given uh, very little thought to kind of material culture, um, because obviously, I mean, I, you know, grew up reading football magazines and there were always little stories, you know, there were stories in those, um, uh, annuals with, and, you know, and, and, and comics and, and all kinds of things. So I've been thinking in my head, well, if it's me on my own in a library, it's going, probably just going to have to be fiction. Mm. Um, but if it, but if it's something that kind of, kind of, um, uh, grows out, then, then I, it would be, it'd be very cool to, you know, have a, a video games expert looking at fictional components in, in video games and things like that. Excellent. Thanks a lot, sir. And just I'd like to finally thank all three of our speakers there. It's been a really interesting discussion about the purposes of history and the writing of history too. Um, I'd like to wish you all a really good rest of afternoon, a good bank holiday weekend, and remind you that the next session for those of you coming...